Army veteran Sean Olds finally connects his passion with nonprofits and technology as he starts up Boodle AI. Coming up next on Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal. Navy Federal has a mission to put your members first by making their financial goals a priority. You can receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions. It's open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including over 1 million veterans and their families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash Veteran Move for more information. Hey, talking with Army veteran Sean Olds today with Boodle AI. Sean, before we get to talking about what you're doing on the entrepreneurial scene and business today, take us back and tell us what you did in the Army. Sure, Joe. Happy to. And thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate the opportunity. I kind of got tricked into going uh, my route into the Army. I knew as a kid, my father was a a lifelong military officer. Um, He had left the Hawaiian Islands where he grew up to do ROTC at the University of San Francisco. And I knew that was going to be my path. Um, My dad, who was not fond early in his career of, of West Point grads, uh, developed a fondness later on, I believe, and uh, basically bribed me into applying to West Point by uh, promising me I could get my driver's license earlier than my mother was going to let me. <laughs> so um, I ended up at uh, age 17, unable to vote, uh, putting up my hand and, and swearing in on the plane at West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was probably one of the best things that, that happened to me. Um, it was a horrible experience to go through in many ways, but a, a wonderful experience to have uh, as a foundation to start the rest of my life. And went into the uh, Signal Corps, much to my father's chagrin. Uh, I grew up in a family knowing there were only two branches in the United States Army, infantry and infantry support. And so uh, when I went Signal Corps, I was taken out of the will until uh, I, I graduated Ranger School. And then my father found his way to put me back in. Um, I had a wonderful short career at the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, as you well know, many things in the military uh, are made by the lowest bidder and a plane made by the lowest bidder and a shoot made by the lowest bidder did not work out real well for me. Uh, I was actually in the, the SIGO for the 373 Armor Battalion as my last assignment. And before its inactivation, we were volunteered to be the first group of human wind dummies to go out of the C-17. Mm. And uh, about 17 of us got injured on that jump, and uh, I was medicaled out of the military, which for me was very, very difficult because when I graduated high school and went to West Point, the word civilian was not in my vocabulary. (laughs) Um, I had very proudly watched a father serve for over 25 years. Um, I, I watched the, you know, both the hardships he went through, but the, the pride he had in what he did and, and listening to him and the leadership challenges he faced. I knew that's how I was going to spend the rest of my life. Um, so like many bright eyed young second lieutenants, I kind of had my way paved from platoon leader to chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And uh, having to get out as a uh, newly pinned on captain was very hard for me. Um, and I went through a variety of different interviews. I was very fortunate when I got out in the nineties, there was a growing crop of junior military officer recruiting firms, um, that were actively recruiting 
young captains that were getting out and, and helping to put them into interviews. Um, and I went through over 18 interviews. Um, I interviewed from everything from being a salesman for corrugated boxes in South Carolina, um, where my interviewer literally walked in in a, a pair of jeans, a t-shirt with a spit cup in hand, um, to the job I ultimately ended up at, which was a consulting firm called Kurt Salman Associates. And um, it was pure, I won't say dumb luck. I mean, I definitely, you know, the junior military officer recruiting firms were out there. And so that made it easier. Um, it was dumb luck that I got into that interview um, because I sat with that individual and didn't realize, you know, what they looked for um, in this particular firm were people who were a little bit more uh, risk takers, a little bit more entrepreneurial. Um, they were looking for, they were a unique consulting firm in that they put part of the consulting team on the client site. Uh, so meaning we didn't fly in and fly out on Monday and Friday. Um, we stayed there seven days a week. Now we may only stay for three months. We could stay for up to 12 months. Uh, but it was a little bit more like being in the military, kind of going in, doing your mission and getting out. Um, and the reason it ended up very fortunate for me was that firm in 1998 actually was one of the first firms, consulting firms, that decided it would take its compensation in half equity and half cash. And because I had a computer science degree out of West Point and it was the dot-com boom, um, I was one of the first consultants assigned to one of our first e-commerce clients, which was a company called eToys.com. And eToys.com, I was able to join them right before they started their A-round and got to ride them through several rounds of financing, an IPO, a $7 billion valuation, a debt spiral, and a bankruptcy. And uh, you know, it was, it was enlightening because it was not my company, it was not my startup, I was there as a consultant, but I was able to watch the entire chief executive team and, and how they went through both the good times and the bad times. And it did two things for me. It, it definitely laid a foundation of, of how I've worked with startups ever since. Um, but more than that, it, um, it really gave me an insight on, on what not to do. And you remember when you're in the military, you probably had many good leaders that you modeled yourself out of but after. Uh, but you also probably learned a lot and sometimes even more from the bad leaders. Um, and so watching the mistakes a startup in the dot-com boom made have, has definitely informed and, and made me more successful as as I've gone forward. Yeah. Interesting story. I swear I, I have a Marine Corps buddy of mine that worked for that same cardboard box company. Cause that, that, <laughs> that interview scenario sounds very familiar to me. I think he interviewed a lot of people, <laughs> <laughs> which I think it was a pretty good company. It's just, you know, it's, you're selling cardboard boxes. So, um, which, which is an interesting point, Joe, because it's funny because a lot of people, they, you know, the, the term that got used a lot when we were getting out of uh, both the military and out of, of grad school was, you know, people wanted the sexy job. They wanted Goldman Sachs. They wanted McKinsey. Um, I have a, a Navy friend who uh, started his own private equity firm investing in the unsexy businesses. And, and one of the ones he invested in over a decade ago was a pallet company of all things. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's just not definitely not sexy. Um, and he today is, uh, worth a significant amount of money in less than a decade because he just slowly built that company up. And at the end of the day, companies need pallets. Um, and he just made sure that he was constantly either building the best pallet company or acquiring the best pallet company. 
So while I definitely got the sexy job going to the startup, um, the, the, the non-sexy ones definitely have uh, not only their place in, in, in how the country progresses, but uh, they can definitely be very lucrative. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not just in job seeking that that comes up. It also comes up in entrepreneurship because everybody wants to start up the cool new app. You know, this is going to be the next Uber for the such and such industry. You hear all of that, or I'm going to invent the next iPhone. And But the fact is, if, if you're good at executing on a basic need in the community, then you can be successful. I mean, it, it, I've had folks on the podcast where guy got out of the Marine Corps and he just started mowing yards. Next thing you yep. know, he's got millions of dollars of government contracts mowing grass for the U S government. So, yep. and it, uh, you know, can go anywhere from, or cleaning businesses, you know, if you're good at executing on cleaning office complexes and your people are reliable and you're running the, so I, I, I find I take more, um, it's probably more interest in the people that can execute on those basic things and make a lot of money at it than somebody trying to be so creative that, um, it, you know, it's probably something that may not ever work because it, it's really in, in so many ways, it's not a big secret how to be successful as an entrepreneur. Just like it's not a big secret how to be successful as a, and become a great employee. You know, 80, well, 80% of it's showing up and just absolutely. doing what you're supposed to do, you know? Um, well, you bring up you bring up a really good point, and it was you know when I my first experience with the dot com boom was was my first experience with startups, and and it was it was in L A, but we obviously spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and and I was skewed in my mindset that doing a startup and starting a business meant you either fail or you become a billion dollar unicorn. Um, and, and one of the greatest courses I took in my MBA class was an entrepreneurial finance class. And it was, it was ironic because it was one of the most sought after professors after Oprah Winfrey. And what's, what's hilarious about it is the professor actually didn't teach a single day. Um, he used his network to bring in just an amazing variety of entrepreneurs. And he brought in the people who had created the billion dollar company that went on to do great things and sell. Um, but he, he brought in more people who were doing what, what is termed lifestyle businesses. And so they were businesses that people need, in a lot of cases, businesses that they needed or at least they were passionate about. They were never businesses that were going to sell for $100 million or a $1 billion. Mm -hmm. But every single one of these entrepreneurs were millionaires, if not multimillionaires. And more than anything, every single one of these entrepreneurs were the, – they controlled their own destiny. You know, if they, they had a business that if they wanted to take off Friday to go to their – child's little league game, they could do that. It, it wasn't an issue. Um, whereas a lot of people who are trying to build that rocket ship that shoots the moon, that becomes a little bit more difficult to do. So the the span of what being an entrepreneur means is is very wide and, and, and varied. Um, and I, I think it's important for people to understand that as they start out. Within a few months when I first joined the Marine Corps, I became a Navy Federal member. That was over 29 years ago, and I still have the same account after 29 years. Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. You can receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions. A credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's. Member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and perks. Access to over 300 branches and thousands of fee-free ATMs. 
They also have 24-7 live support through their U.S.-based call center. Navy Federal is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including over 1 million veterans and their families. At Navy Federal Credit Union, their members are the mission. Visit NavyFederal.org slash VeteranMove for more information. That's NavyFederal.org slash VeteranMove for more info. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Hey, we're back talking with Sean Olds from Boodle AI. Sean, uh, before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, many people have a very different viewpoints of what being an entrepreneur is really all about. Some, you know, some people think it's got to be the, the sexy new software company or the, or the new app or the, or the, you know, the, the Uber for this industry. And then we were talking about, you know, there's so many successful entrepreneurs out there that just execute on basic ideas, you know, mowing yards or cleaning offices, whatever. Um, what, I think you have a couple stories and opinions about, you know, going through getting your MBA and, and being around a lot of startups and entrepreneurs. What kind of opinions do you have you run across with people and what they think being an entrepreneur is all about? Yeah, it's it, it's funny. I remember when I was in grad school, uh, you know, everybody's kind of sizing people up. You know, if I'm going to go into consulting, who are the people that are going to be uh, trying to do the consulting interviews with me? If I'm going to go into banking, who am I competing with there? Um, and so people are always asking people, what are you going to do? And and I always got kind of cracked up when I would ask someone and their response is, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And because that was where I came from, I get really excited. And I say, oh, that's great. What, what's your business? And I'd get this blank stare. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, what are you going to do? And they're like, well, I'm, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And and for me, it's, you know, entre- being an entrepreneur, every successful entrepreneur I've been around didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. They set out to fix something. They set out to do something. They set out to solve an issue. Um, and I think for, for an entrepreneur to be truly successful, there's got to be that passion there. There's got to be that drive uh, to do something, not simply to be an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, frankly, it's, it's where I ended up. Uh, Ten years ago, I, I actually swore off being an entrepreneur, uh, because my, my, I wanted to start angel investing and my wife's condition was I had to have a real job with a real paycheck. Um, if I was going to start doing angel investing with our money. (laughs) And, uh, so I'd been, I'd been advising companies, I'd been investing in companies, but I wasn't out actually starting my own business. And, and frankly, in that, that 10 years, nothing really came along that I was passionate about and wanted to go out and fix and solve. And um, I came back to the United States. I was living in the Middle East and I came back to the United States for a board meeting for one of the companies my wife and I had invested in. And after the board meeting was catching up with my now co-founder and he pitched me on the idea of Boodle. And it, it literally merged my private life, which was, has been spent 25 years sitting on nonprofit boards. Um, with my professional life, which was doing tech startups. And uh, I kind of had to go tail between legs back to my wife to, to ask permission to, to go against my promise to her to start a new company. Um, but she looked at it and she said, there's no way I can take this away. Like, this is what you're passionate about. This is what you want to do. It's what you do in your private life. It's what you've done in your public life. Like, how, how could you not want to live day to day as and work in bringing those two areas together. And that was truly the, the genesis of Boodle. Yeah, you know, um, uh, most of us in the military are familiar with the term, you got to get in the fight. Like, you know, sometimes you can't you know, be orbiting several miles away, listening to what's going on in the objective area. Sometimes you got to 
in you got to insert yourself into that fight to get in on it. And oftentimes, it, a lot of people have the desire to run their own business or to be an entrepreneur. But you're right; they don't know what the ve- what their vehicle to the fight is going to be. And so they stand on the sidelines and they never get involved at all and nothing ever comes along. But if, if you get in it, if you're in the middle of it or you go work for a startup or you go work, work for someone else that's got an idea and just get in the mix of it and start churning, you'll get exposure. You'll, you'll meet people like you met with your co-founder. And you, you got to get in there and get exposed to the people that are in the arena. Otherwise, it's never going to happen for you. You can't just you can't stand on the sidelines until the idea comes along if you don't already have one. So... Um, Absolutely, it's interesting how that came along for you. No, it's in, in, in it's a it is so important to value the experience. A lot of people think if I'm not out building my own company, I'm getting behind the eight ball. Um, and the reality is, you know, one of the worst things that can I want to say the worst thing, but for your reputation and, and ability to raise more money is to go out with a half-brained idea and have it fail. Um, you know, failure. Most entrepreneurs do fail at some point. Um, but you, you want to fail doing the right thing and learning something from it, not have people look at you and say, well, if you just done 60 days more research, you would have realized that wasn't a starter to begin with. Um, and so, you know, I didn't call myself an entrepreneur when I was at eToys because it wasn't my company. I was a consultant there, but I was there getting experience. I was getting into, as you said, getting into the network. Um, and little did I know 20 years later, the VP of engineering at eToys who I worked with would end up being my CTO for Boodle. Hmm. Uh, and, and but for getting in there and getting that experience and, and not being so focused on being in charge and being the guy who was who was doing the startup, um, I was able to build a very valuable connection that has been invaluable in the building of our own company now. Wow. So tell us what Boodle AI is. And what are you guys doing? Sure. So Boodle AI is focused on bringing individuals to the causes that they care about. So as I mentioned, I've I've served on nonprofit boards for 25 years. Um, about the only thing I've disliked about my service with philanthropy is fundraising. And it's not asking for money. I, I can do that. I can be shameless and go ask people for money. It's watching how much time and money is wasted on the act of fundraising time and money that should be spent on the mission of the organization. And so the the genesis of Boodle was finding a way to mitigate that. One of the other problems we're trying to solve is that with the advent of crowdfunding, where I can reach out to you, Joe, and get you to give $25 to anything I want, because it's harder for you to come to me and tell me why you're not going to give $25 than it is just to throw the credit card down and do it. Mm -hmm. Your problem is next year when you find out what I got you to give to was the Puppies Without Tails Foundation, You don't care about that and you're not giving to it, right? When they ask you for more money. And so what what right now the statistic with crowdfunding is that charities lose 80% of their first year donors every year. Hmm. So every year they're out fundraising knowing they're only going to keep about 20% of their people. And so what we wanted to do was leverage and harness the power of machine learning and AI to help people connect with people in their network that actually have an affinity towards the organization. And so that's ultimately what we do. We work with the charity. The charity uh, uses our system to um, build their own bespoke algorithm, which we're calling a guide on. And that guide on is unique and specific to them. And they are able then to have either individuals as who are board members or donors or supporters or internal development staff use that guide on 
to help them determine who the best who the best people are to reach out to. So very good example, we have one organization right now, they have a newsletter list of about 30,000 people that they've never asked for donations from because they don't wanna lose that list. They also have about 50,000 active donors right now. And so what they're doing is they're using our platform to build a bespoke algorithm that tells them what the traits are of their best donors in their donor database. So who are the people who have donated for three years or more? And then what they're going to do is they're going to run that newsletter list through that and help the help have the system tell them who are the top 10% of the newsletter list that look the most like their lifetime donors. And then they're very comfortable reaching out to those people that even if the person doesn't donate, they're probably not going to lose them off the newsletter list. Um, we have another organization that's doing that for monthly recurring donors. Um, and then at the end of the day, we, we can use the same tool for people like me who sit on a board who right now or before Boodle would have to sit down to LinkedIn and slowly go through LinkedIn and thumb through profiles to try and figure out who I think might donate. Now the system logs in and in just minutes tells me who in my network is most likely to have an affinity towards the, the, the charity that I'm fundraising for. Interesting. So I was going to ask, I think I know the answer. Why do most charities lose their their donors within a year of the first time they donate? And is the answer because they weren't really the right donor to begin with? Absolutely. It, it was someone who got guilted into it. It was someone who happened to be someplace and, and gave a little bit, but it, it wasn't that strong affinity wasn't there. And if you can bring someone in who's got an affinity and the organization does its job in growing that individual with them, then you're going to get someone who's going to end up as a lifetime donor. And are, are nonprofits, the people that run are running nonprofits that you're dealing with, are they often surprised at who their long-term lifetime donors end up being? So they end up surprised at two things. So one of the things that are when we build the algorithm that we're able to do, um, you know, to get a little bit in the details, one of the things we do is something we call data enrichment. So while we never reuse our users' data and we, we state that in the terms of service, we never sell or share data that comes into our system from a user, we do buy a lot of data. And, and we use that data to help train the, the machine learning. And what it's able to do, we, we can literally put over 500 data points against every donor in a donor database. And when you do that, some very non-intuitive results start to happen. Um, I mean, we've seen data sets where one of the most prevalent characteristics, and this wasn't an animal-related charity, it was a veterans-related charity, um, but one of the most prevalent characteristics was that there was a dog in the household. Um, you know, not something you would think of for a veteran service organization, but for their data set, that, that stood out. Hmm. Um, what we are finding is that on an, down to an individual basis, people are very surprised. So we had a board member who's a co-founder of the organization actually, who had spent over five years raising from his network. And he had a network of over 8,000 people. And um, he was pretty sure he had gone through over five years, everybody he could get to in his network who would give money. And uh, he still was willing to log into our system and was a little bit taken aback by the fact that even after five years of fundraising from his network, we had found 400 people he had never reached out to before. And so he, over, over several re 
weeks, reached out to each one of those 400. About four weeks in, though, he'd reached out to about 100 people. And one of the first 100 people he reached out to, without any follow-up, just from an email from this individual, sent in a check for $10,000. And when we went back to the, the individual fundraiser who had sent the emails out, we asked him about it. He says, look, I've known this guy for 20 years. <laughs> But I, I also just didn't think he cared about veteran service organizations. And when we, we asked him if, if he'd be willing to put us in touch with the guy, and so we got to interview the guy to understand. And what our machine had found is we had found historical data of his giving to vet, veteran service organizations. He quit giving right around the time the Wounded Warrior Project was in the news mm-hmm, because yeah. he felt that maybe, and he, he wasn't giving to Wounded Warrior, but he was giving to another veteran service organization. And so he felt that his money just wasn't going to be spent right. But he said, but Alan, I've known you for 20 years and I know that anything you're attached to is going to do very well. And so I trust that you're spending my money properly and I'm willing to put in. And so it's those little things that, you know, you and I have that data at our fingertips. We could go find it, but we just don't have the time in the day to do it, especially not if we're volunteering for an organization. And so all this tool does is, you know, when a person sets out to fundraise, the big things they need to know is, is how much do I need to fundraise? Who am I going to fundraise from, from and, and how am I going to do it? And, and the organization is going to drive how much you need to fundraise. What we're providing them is the who do you go to and how do you do it? Because we actually, within the tool, provide them the email to send or to provide them the tool to send emails out, um, making it much easier. We've literally had people in 30 minutes send 30 personalized emails out to people. This is not mass spam emails, personalized emails going out. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously the, the matching the right mentality to the nonprofit of the, you know, the donor mentality to the nonprofit is vitally important. What have you found data wise as far as uh, reach back or feedback um, or the or the ongoing relationship with the donor. And what I'm saying is, for example, the guy who donated ten thousand dollars. If it's a veteran service organization, how meaningful or important, as far as the data shows, is it for that nonprofit to say, "Hey, by the way, last year when you gave us that ten thousand dollars, this guy got a track chair, and you know this guy got a service dog, and your money is what bought those two things for these two people, and here they are, and here's what's happened." How valuable is that, or do you find that it's really the initial match that is more important? So this is not an area Boodle gets into. We, we don't do the, the follow-up per se. We're purely donor acquisition. We, we leave it to the charity to um, grow with their donors in the way they see most fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is purely opinion, not a, not a business decision, if you will, but it's opinion built on 25 years of working with, with nonprofits. And my experience is people really do like to see where their money is going. I mean, people, it, it is, there's evidence out there that if you make the commitment that the dollars raised, that 100% of the dollars is going into the program, 100% of the dollars is going to a scholarship and not towards overhead, that people not only tend to donate at a higher percentage, but also tend to donate more money because they don't feel like, hey, this is going to be used for the company party or whatever else. Now, Organizations have to pay their overhead, um, but there is definitely, I, I think, uh, more validity given when the organization is able to link the dollar to what result the, the program is having. Okay, and something else that comes up all the time is 
there's so many veterans that get out of the military and they decide I'm going to start a veteran nonprofit. I mean, there's, there's so many of them out there. Um, what comes to mind when you hear somebody who's getting ready to get out of the military, just got out and they, and you hear them say, I think I'm going to start a veteran nonprofit. I, I would give them the same advice I give them if they told me I want to be an entrepreneur. And if they came and said, I want to be an entrepreneur, I said, let me, let me tell you 12 different startups you should go spend a year working at. And, and get the experience, learn what a balance sheet is, learn what it means to not have government health care, learn what it means to you know, not come into work in a uniform every day, just get the basics of business down. And, and I would, having started, I started my own 501c3 over 15 years ago, um, it's a painful process. And, and I would tell them, hey, before you go start your own nonprofit, let me give you 12 different nonprofits you should go work at for a year. Add your value there, learn the ropes, learn how it's done, because only through that are you truly going to be able to provide value to the constituency you want to serve. So, you know, as, as with anything, I mean, you came into the military, you went through basic um, to, before you went out to a unit. You, you don't just walk straight into a unit. So go out, get that experience. Um, and, and at the end of the day, that experience is really going to allow you and afford you the opportunity to see new opportunities. Um, you know, that that background is going to allow you to capitalize on things that are in front of you that you might not realize otherwise. Um, and that's what we've done with Boodle too. We, we have evolved Boodle uh, past the nonprofit sector. So we literally had people who were sitting on boards and investors who saw the technology and what it did and came to us and said, look, could you do this for X? And if we had been so myopically focused on, no, we can only service nonprofits, we would have missed a big opportunity. Um, but we're in the midst of, of launching a, a basically a, an offshoot brand. It's, it's under the Boodle banner, um, but we have Guide On AI right now um, that is helping commercial clients solve a very similar problem. They're not out looking for donors, they're out looking for customers. Mm. Um, but I, I will say it's the, you know, the experience of myself and uh, my two co-founders who have been, you know, over 15 years each in the private sector. Um, one of my co-founders has started several different companies and sold one off. And that experience that allowed us to capitalize on the opportunity that was in front of us and not myopically focused down one path that may or may not be successful enough to carry the business all the way through. Now, where exactly are you in, in the process of Boodle or where is Boodle is what I mean to say as far as size, uh, structure, number of customers, um, whatever you're, you're willing to share. Um, sure. No, absolutely. So we, we started the company in April 16 and, uh, we were not building an app. We were building a technology. So, um, we spent, uh, over two and a half years building that technology by the end of 2020, we will have over 20 patents pending on that technology. So unlike an app company, which you can pretty much code probably in about 90 to 120 days and, and thrust out in the market and see if it's going to work, um, we went through the process of doing customer uh, product market fit interviews um, and then really building out the tech and bringing on the right resources to do that. Um, one of the things I've done is, is that learned experience during the dot-com boom where companies would, uh, one of the notorious things that was just ridiculous is they would get their A round of funding and then they would have a launch party and they would spend literally hundreds of thousands of dollars throwing a big party one evening. Oh, um, when, when the month before their A round, their entire burn wasn't as much as that party cost most likely. 
Um, and, 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 and along with that came the masseuses and the free food and the tripling in size of staff. <laughs> uh, we have, we've, that, and that was, I talked about the, the bad lessons that you learn and, and I've carried that with me through each of my, my own ventures and have, have never, uh, tried to scale up past what we needed to do. So, um, after three years, we just hired our 13th employee, uh, last week, um, which we're very excited about. And, uh, from a customer point of view, we, we went out onto the market in January of this year, of, uh, we're in 2019. We went out with a bad pricing model. Um, we were very fortunate around May timeframe to partner with a company that has been consulting to the nonprofit space for about 30 years. And they helped us to redo our pricing model. So we're basically able to relaunch in June. Um, and we've been steadily adding customers uh, since then. Uh, we're up to just over 20 customers on the platform. Um, and what's exciting is customers using both our peer-to-peer -peer solution, but also our internal development solution. Um, and then simultaneous to all of that, we are uh, announcing, I, I guess I'll kind of do it here as a start, um, we'll be announcing next week that we'll be making our first foray into the political realm. Um, it was very important to us that if we went into politics that we did so in a very nonpartisan manner. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're announcing that we will only work with candidates who have been endorsed by a super PAC called With Honor. Uh, with Honor was started last election cycle by Secretary Madeleine Albright and Secretary Robert Gates. And they will only support military veterans. And the one pledge a military veteran has to make in order to garner their endorsement is that once in office, they will once a month take a one hour substantive meeting with someone from the other side of the aisle. So both uh, Secretary Albright and Secretary Gates wanted to use veterans to help break down partisanship in this country. And so we're going to do the same thing. Uh, we'll be announcing our first two veterans, one Republican and one Democrat, that we'll be adding to our platform under the banner of adjutant AI. So completely segregated from Boodle AI um, will be adjutant AI. And um, we'll grow that obviously over the next, uh, whatever it is, 15 months before the next election. And then uh, finally, I mentioned to you, we're, we're building out Guide on AI. We're in that process right now. I mean, we've literally started this in the past two months, and we're in the process of doing 100 customer product market fit interviews. And uh, once we get through those and determine that there's a there there, we'll start to develop the, the front end because it's still going to leverage the back end that we've already built. Wow, that's great, Sean. So you guys are off and running. It's great to hear your success and what's happening here in the near future. Um, I do want to give you the last word. Uh, if, if somebody wants to get more information and get in contact with Boodle AI, how do they go about doing that? www.boodle.ai. And uh, as, as a last word, rather than talking about Boodle, the, the biggest thing I would say is, um, you know, for people who are, who are making that transition is leverage the, the veteran network. Um, when I got out of the military, I reached out to 10 veterans and nine of the 10 all returned my phone call and six of them couldn't do anything for me, but they at least called back to tell me they couldn't. And the other three were the three that led to introductions that led to the path I got on. And uh, I have continued to pursue that uh, on each new venture when I need help reaching out to other veterans. Um, and I've tried to give back into the community too, as veterans reach out to me. Uh, I'm always willing to take time to grab a half hour cup of coffee and talk about ideas and ways I might be able to help. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well said. I mean, we talk about networking and how vital it is in a successful transition. So I'm really glad you said all that. It's very important. So, well, Sean, we're out of time. I appreciate you sharing your entrepreneurial success story, and we look forward to seeing your future success. Well, thanks so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. All right. These two veterans or Oscar Mike? Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike.